Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Over the Bridge Podcast, where we just have good chats that we like having and hopefully you like listening to. Um, today, fortunately Tom and Patrick couldn't be here, but you're lucky because you've just got me and Kwaku and one incredible <laughs> guest who will introduce themselves in a moment. But before they do, Kwaku, how are you doing? I'm good, man, I'm good. Just, uh... I think I, f- I feel like I say this every week, but I'm like I introduce myself by saying how tired I am. But <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 this is this is especially the case this week because it's been a lot of um, work stuff, a lot of interviews, growing up the team and stuff. So it's been taking a lot of time and a lot of like hearing multiple people selling themselves is something that's a bit it's a bit draining. I won't lie, it's a little bit draining just to hear people trying to yeah. sell how good they are for the job. But what, um, what have you found is like the one that's got you like what have you bought into this week what have i sorry what have you bought into in terms of people who've interviewed like what's been good about them oh um do you know what i think this because our whole thing is like supporting people in tech and like particularly diverse diversity in tech and mm. it's something that you just need to be super passionate about passionate about incre- um, increasing diversity in general um but then working with startups and be motivational and inspiring and etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah so the, I think the main thing is just passion and we've had loads of people that applied that are just like super super passionate have done stuff off their own back to like mentor people and yeah oh, cool. some people got like really impressive CVs in it so that's that's always nice to connect with, with people like that yeah I like I don't think I've ever got a job based on an application you know um out like an outright job it's either just been someone knows me and have given me work or mm. Or I've somehow got an interview without actually writing a CV. So I don't own, I don't have a CV. That's the one thing about me because I don't know how to write one. That is so wild. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. And here we That's are. That's what they say about this, um, your your network is your net worth. Honestly. Like, prime I live, example. I live by that. I'm nearly 30 and I don't have a CV. And, <laughs> and I honestly don't know how to write one. And I get young people going, oh, can you help me? And I'm like, nope. Yeah, I feel like this needs a disclaimer. <laughs> Kids, if you're listening, definitely have a CV. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably a bad example here. Oh, man. But anyway, how do we get started? And we'll introduce our guest who I'm so excited that we've got her on this podcast because it's funny we're flipping the script a little bit here because I've been interviewed by her before and she's wonderful. She does amazing work in the world of journalism. So Natalie, why don't you tell everyone who you are? Well, that's a very nice intro and hi everyone. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, Yeah, I'm Natalie and I'm a lifestyle journalist at Metro Online, which is separate to Metro the Paper, which a lot of people don't realise. And yeah, and I write about all sorts of things, a lot about race and identity, um, cultural things, um, you know, like basically all sorts of different things. But yeah, like you say, um, Bilal, I have interviewed you before, so... Mm-hmm. It's nice to be on the other end of the, <laughs> of the of the interviewing spectrum. It's weird for me. I'm normally the one asking the questions and I'm a bit like, oh my gosh, what are you going to ask me? <laughs> so yeah, I'm ready though. I'm ready to, to be on the other side. It's fun. Oh man. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to like scare you with anything. There's nothing <laughs> scary that I've got to, to say. But I guess what would be really interesting to hear from you is what got you into doing the work that you do? Um, I've always just wanted to tell stories, I think, is at the heart of of what I do. Um, So I've been basically working in journalism in different forms for 
really the last kind of nine-ish years since I graduated, oh, which is a long time ago. How old am I? Um, so yeah, and, and the heart of getting into it was was about storytelling and about connecting with people and um, telling stories and, you know, events that move people and make people feel seen. Um, I want to recreate that feeling of the, the kind of feeling when when you read something or you watch something and you get that jolt of recognition that you didn't really know that you may not have known other people felt where you're like, Oh my God, like I'm not the only person who thinks this or feels like this. I'm not the only person who's had Mm. that experience. Um, And I think that's what I really want to do with my work. And that's what drives me. And that's why I kind of had to be in journalism. And also what I think drove me into, into print and and writing as opposed to, because I worked at, ITV News and was doing broadcast mm. journalism, which I loved and was and was a lot, I loved a lot of it and it was great. But it's it's kind of more prescriptive when you're doing uh, news in that in that way. Like you know, you watch you watch the news and it's kind of it's formulaic in a way. You know how you know how it's going to go. You know there's going to yeah. be some politician and they're going to ask something about you know you know exactly what's going to be said. It's almost scripted in a way, and I found that quite restricting. Um, and at which and and yeah, and in print, I just have much more autonomy and ability to to really think about the like the communities and the people who aren't necessarily served by those formulaic um, representations of current events and look at it from a slightly different angle. Um, and I've been really lucky to be to be given the freedom to kind of to do that. So that's what I really appreciate in the job that I'm in at the moment and the kind of freelance stuff that I do around my job. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of it. Storytelling, connecting with people, that jolt of recognition, like, oh hey, I'm not alone in this in this feeling that I thought was just in my brain. That's what I want to do, basically. I love that. I didn't actually I'd never really thought about the difference between broadcast. I don't know why I'd never thought about it. The differences there. Because now you say it, I'm thinking every time I've even listened to the news, it sounds this I know it's different, obviously, hopefully the news changes every day, but like the actual rhythm of what people are saying sounds mm. the same. And I've yeah, it's it, never it crossed really, my mind. Definitely, it is really rhythmic. And, and and you say the news changes every day, and it does in a way, but having worked in, in that environment for a couple of years, you do realise how cyclical it is. And there isn't that mm. much difference in the news and that, you know, the same events happen every year. And even, even the things that are anomalies are, have happened before. And so, you know, there's some there's some event and there's a certain way of reporting that event and that's already so embedded in the cultures of the newsroom and how they do it and and there's not much scope for difference and I think that's where it becomes kind of Mm. you get that separation between people because you I don't know it's very it, it seems like this um like a cyclical like spiral of the people who are in it think there's only one way of telling a certain story and then you just get sucked into that and they don't have any um scope for for difference I think that's that's the issue um with broadcast that that put me off essentially um but yeah it's it's surprising how little scope there is you think oh I'll I'll be I'll be able to do so many different things and and some people are doing incredible um original innovative stuff and but but just not enough of it because it really stands out when you see a piece like that and things that get shared on Twitter and these amazing journalists who are doing these kind of different stories and different angles on these stories and they do stand out um and they and you know they'll go viral and people are like wow this is amazing and that's because we don't see enough of it at all which mm. is a shame I think 
Yeah, yeah. I'm generally just like, wow, because I, I don't know why I've never thought about this. And actually, the pieces that do go viral are always the ones that I'm like, oh, that's not normally what the news is like. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. So why do you... Um... Like, why do you see that as a do you think that's like a trend like people kind of is it as you say kind of like there's a certain formula and structure that's in place and people just don't like going against the the norms or is it i don't know i think as as a as a consumer um and maybe this is a little bit of a conspiracy theorist hat on but I, you kind of see it as like okay there's a particular agenda that wants that is being pushed in some way or form like whether it be politically left-leaning or right-leaning or whatever the case is um and I guess with that you have to kind of toe a particular line of how you the type of stories you cover but also the way you cover it um is it I don't know do you see that as something that will change over time with like a lot more guerrilla style type journalism happening a lot of people kind of going independent and doing stuff strictly online and um yeah do you think that's something that can help change that that culture of you know, the kind of status quo of how you report. Yeah, news. yeah, I think, well, I think journalism is shifting and adapting all the time. It has to in order to survive because, you know, the the, the huge changes we've seen in, in how stories are communicated just over the last, you know, over the last 10 years, even in my my pretty short-lived journalism career, you've see, we've seen so much change already. Um, and the focus has become so much more digital and online. But even those structures, you know, those kind of organisations aren't necessarily... Um, Solid and, the, and you know the way that they're built aren't, aren't always working as well so I think it's constantly having to shift and and change and and I do think that that's a positive thing um and something that I think will continue to evolve um and I think I think the only way for it to to actually change is to is to change the scope of the people who are who are allowed to be in journalism like you look at journalism is 94% white and a huge mm. proportion of wow. of journalism is it's, it's it's a surprisingly elitist profession which I don't think I don't think everyone realizes I think partly because it's not very well paid so you don't really associate it with like um you know people who are who are really well off and posh and whatever but um but you know a part of the reason is because it doesn't have to be well paid because so many of the people in journalism yeah. have family money and have are from mm-hmm. those worlds, um, which is which is what makes it so exclusive because there are certain people who can't take those you know unpaid internships, can't work for nothing for years, can't um, you know can't just get can't even get a foot in the door in those spaces, and I think that's the reason why we don't see so much change because you look in those newsrooms and you see the same faces and therefore you see yeah. the same ideas and everyone just does what the person next to them is doing and it just is a self-perpetuating kind of environment um and uh, yeah the only way to to break out of that is to is to make it more accessible as an industry which I think is a really difficult thing to do um but I think it is really important because one of the things that I've always struggled with in journalism is how people are telling stories that they have no connection to. They're telling stories about communities that they don't understand, that they haven't been in, that they don't know. And that's Mm. why you see these gaffes. You see, um, you know, people making silly mistakes and saying problematic things and uh, and offending people. And and that's because there is that lack of knowledge there because there aren't enough, there isn't enough diversity or variation in those rooms. 
yeah and I've, I've seen it myself and I've, I've been in those newsrooms and I've been in those morning meetings and I've been the only person of colour in that room and I'm, you know and I've been also the most junior person so um and so I don't really have a voice so that's that's another thing is is not only getting people into those rooms but also like cultivating an environment where they can actually thrive um mm-hmm. and that's where it's struggling because I think you can get people in all day but if you get in there and it's kind of this old boys club um where you're you can mm-hmm. see very clearly that you're not going to progress if you don't toe that certain line um then yeah people people just leave in in droves we just lose a lot of talent from the industry um because it because it is so exclusive yeah yeah it's interesting in in tackling you know the lack of diversity in journalism and i guess even quite broad, more broadly within the creative industries there's um you know a few different approaches have been taken but i feel like one that i come across quite a lot is these like internships and trainee programs where is specifically for or encouraged for to be from people from um, BAME backgrounds for instance and my wife actually got into um, TV and journalism through um, a scheme called Creative Access and I'm not sure if you, you've heard of them but I have yeah they're that, amazing well yeah they do a lot of good yeah. things I think yeah they're, they're really cool and like that's how she kind of got a foot in the door but like what you just expressed and now um, when she got her first role with them um, at the BBCs, like she had so many, uh, she had so much difficulty with her team and like just the opportunities that she was given and um, opportunities to progress due to you know kind of being the only the only black person in the in the room and the most junior person in the room as you as you said. Um, what is your general like feeling about those types of schemes? Because I mean, in one way it's like, okay, cool, you're getting your foot in the door, but in the other way it's like but there's not as much, um, well, you can in some ways kind of be seen as the, a, a token in some mm-hmm. sense, or um, some people might question your credibility in being there. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I can even make a comparison to um, perhaps for like me and, and Bilal and like other people that like black and mixed race people that went to Cambridge where people might question like, oh, how did you get here? Was it like a, was it kind of like you were hitting a quota for the college or like just, just, really kind of weird suspicions around your credibility and being in that space like um this me kind of ranting a little bit now but yeah how do you kind of feel about the, the schemes those types of schemes yeah there's a, it's a really interesting one and it's it's funny you say about the quota thing and I think that is that is something that people of color in those spaces definitely feel um my friend um who is a South Asian guy he actually um was was told um that he you know that he should apply for something because he would tick that box they actually physically said those words to him um so that is definitely a thing that isn't just in our heads it's not something that we're just making up or we're you know worried about that is something that that is real in those spaces and people people do think that of you um and that can be really demoralizing and um, yeah, a massive hit on your kind of self-esteem and your self-worth. And you think, do I really belong in these spaces? Am I am I good enough to be here? Um, so I, yeah, mm. I think it's really it's really difficult because so I was I was on a a trainee scheme um, for ITN and it wasn't it wasn't a, a BAME specific trainee scheme. But having been through that mm. experience, I know that it's really hard to shake off that um, intern. 
um, you know, trainee scheme type thing label. Um, And I found that was really, really difficult. And no matter where I went or how, how I progressed in that space, there were always people who saw me as that junior person who was just an intern or just a trainee yeah. or whatever, even once the scheme had finished and I had a role and I'd, uh, you know, applied for a job and, and got the job and was doing the job. And there were still people who <laughs> treated you like you were the very, very bottom of the pile. Um, mm. And in those spaces, the way they treat people at the bottom of the pile is not good at all. It is bad. Um, and, and I find that, and I think that that's something that I think in those schemes, like you say would be really really hard to 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 grow beyond um because i think there's it's almost like a stigma being attached to it that you're this junior person and i don't know how you progress from that and i saw it with with everybody um who's gone through that kind of scheme and and finding that you know to to really have that legitimacy of your of your position in that organization was almost harder um because you'd gone through it on this scheme and it was funny because the scheme is presented as so prestigious and so um, like, like an amazing thing to achieve, like an achievement. Like I got on it and the, and the, mm. the way they talk to you, they're like, you know, the world is your oyster now. You can do all of this. And I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe I got on the scheme. This is great. But then it follows you around and it's almost this like spectre, like on your shoulder and everyone, and you can feel people treating you in a certain way. Um, and I did, and I got to the point where I was like, I'm, I will have to leave. Um, and and you know potentially come back in a few years if I want to because that's the only way I'm ever going to be taken seriously in a way so I think that is one issue with those schemes is how do you how do you grow beyond them and and not be seen as a person who came through on this scheme and the kind of associations that come with that but also um similar to what I was saying about cultivating a space um for people who've come through these schemes because it's all well and good getting people in in there but then the those spaces aren't built for people like us um we're we're not necessarily welcomed with open arms it's not easy to be in those spaces um I've some of the some of my best friends that I made when I was there are are people of color and and we have these discussions all the time about and obviously we we, we gravitated towards each other because there weren't many of us and we kind of were like you know you immediately clock onto each other and you're like okay you get it let's go chat Mm -hmm. outside about how annoying everything is all the time um which i think is is the case in in any organization um yeah particularly in in these spaces they're not they're not designed for us they're not created for people from different backgrounds to succeed and that can be that can be really hard to get over like I think and and for me and I and I come as someone who has a huge amount of privilege so um, I'm mixed first of all with with a white parent so I have that proximity to whiteness and that palatability also I went to a grammar school so and my dad is a journalist um and so I have these kind of ins that a lot of people of color don't have so already I have bags more privileged than you know the average you know somebody else like who who is who is not white coming into that space and and even for me it felt hostile at times so I I can't even imagine what it would be like for someone who doesn't tick all those boxes that I tick um and I think it's it's about finding a way of making people feel like they belong there and I don't know how you do that when um the people at the top are always the same people and are promoting the same people 
Um, so it's, it's kind of that, you know, eternal question of how you break out of that. Um, but it, it is such a shame because it does mean that lose that talent and not only for the for the journalists who who are having their careers kind of you know messed about with and not not living up to their kind of expectations but also for the people that journalism serves so obviously journalism is a public service right it's the whole Mm. point of it is to you know like I say tell those stories tell the news tell people what's going on inform how people see the world and if nobody if if the people who are telling those stories are from such a narrow pool that has that has a huge ripple effect like that has a huge ripple effect in the in the community in the way the whole country sees the world so which sounds a bit dramatic but I don't I think it is really that deep I genuinely think it is and I think that's why it's so vital this isn't just a case of we need more diversity because we need to have I don't know a colorful newsroom it's it's about <laughs> it's about it's about shaping how the narrative of the country and if we don't have different people telling the stories it's always going to be so narrow and limited yeah yeah and I think that's what really sticks out to me because you know like in my line of work so I'm a D&I facilitator and really often every now and then you have to hit people with a stat or something from the news that they can like cling on to is like oh this is something that's real and it's not just anecdotal experience from someone who's gone through marginalization right and then like, I think that growing up, for, to be honest, I was quite aware that there was disproportionate outcomes for black people in the healthcare system. Like, that was just something that I saw myself as having parents who had to access the healthcare system. And that was just something that I knew, but I didn't really have the data on it or anything like that. And then we had that report that came out about, well, black women in the UK are like five times more likely to die during childbirth, which was like this big thing, which when you could latch onto that and be like, no, this is actually from the news. Like the news said it. People are like, oh, wow, like this is a real story. Like this is true. Um, But there's something there, like what you've said about people as journalists telling stories, like that really sticks out to me as to why do we tell the stories that we tell? Um, And I'm going about this a real long way, but I think about the amount of people that I know who have started their own things as a way to tell stories. So you've got things like Gaudem and then you've got other publications that people of colour or non-white people have created for themselves as a way to articulate their stories. I guess my question on that is, what is the difference between creating your own sort of publishing house, your own place, where your own press, your own journalism, or operating as a journalist within these bigger, more mainstream um broadcasting or journalism um houses i mean i think what like one of the big the key differences will be the freedom um there's mm. the, there won't be any of that tiptoeing around um the main issue you know trying to please people trying to not step too far with with certain things um i think that's can be a problem um for for journalists trying to tell stories about marginalized people I think there's there's a natural pushback from big organizations they don't tend to want to be seen as being controversial or um you know not aligning with the mood of their of their readership or their or their audience and I think that can be a struggle and I think people of color in journalism often have a bit of a battle on their hands trying to get those stories told so Mm -hmm. for me if you work for if you are in a space that you've created if you have something like incredible like Galdem and you just that 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 battle is taken away and you can just Mm. you can frame 
and shape your own narratives and tell the stories that you want to tell without those you know traditional constraints which is really really important to have those spaces to do that um I think that in the yeah in the bigger places of of like the broadcasters and and more mainstream journalism that that is really really hard to do to break through and it's Mm. also quite it can be quite exhausting to have to fight that battle before even doing the work you want to do like it's all this extra additional labor to you know to prove to prove that stories are, are, are worthy which can be really really um like emotionally taxing to have to do that when you're trying mm. to convince you know your your bosses that that a story that you know so, some about a community is worthy of telling it when you know that it is and it's about people it's about people's lives and just because they're not um you know white people the majority that they're somehow yeah. it's just it's just a reminder that they're they're less um that these stories are, are valued less which is exhausting yeah. and upsetting to have to constantly battle against so there's that and but you know there are there are spaces where you don't have to you don't have to deal with that as much I'm I'm really lucky where I am that I don't have that battle on my hands for me my my editor and my boss is is brilliant and lets me lets me tell those stories and I, I don't have a battle on my hands in the slightest but when I you know in the past I have and I know lots of you know colleagues and people at other institutions who who really do have to fight those battles and it's um it's a shame and it can be off-putting and and there have been times when you know you you go to write a story and and you know it's just going to be so difficult to get through and you can't you know it can't always be on us to to have to to push for that and push for that and push for that and and shake the tables when you're on your own as well when you're not getting that support from from people around you so to have something where you build your own space um I think is vital. I think it's so important that people have are able to do that. And yeah, so like Galdem and this this Black Ballad and and I think yeah. internet culture has allowed these these places to flourish. And um it's vital that they do. And also they're not they're 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 more important than just telling those stories. They actually they actually do help to diversify journalism just generally. Mm. So Galdem, mm. when I was working in um in broadcast and I knew I wanted to to cross over to print but I didn't really have the, the experience I didn't have any bylines I didn't have any um you know anything published in, in anywhere mainstream so that was made it really hard to even get in those rooms and to get those interviews um but Galdem published my first work um and it was amazing and it was it, and not only was it like a massive confidence boost like it was to see my name and to see my work online for the first yeah. time I was like wow I can actually do this like this is sick and to, and and telling the stories that I wanted to tell, it, that was obviously sick in itself for me. But also, that's what led me to get my interview that I got for the job that I'm in now. So, if I didn't have that, you know, that was part of my portfolio then that I could go and say to my bosses, okay, no, I haven't been published in in the Guardian or or the Times or whatever, but I've got this, mm. and this is a legitimate real thing, and that opened that door for me. So, and I know mm. I've seen lots of other young um, journalists, black journalists, journalists of color doing that as well and, and writing that stuff on Galdem and then going on to getting these these big jobs um in these big institutions. So that is a it's a really important um platform for journalists to get their voice heard and then to for it to spread beyond that that pool. Mm. So I think there's a double kind of like importance that that these platforms have um which is why I think they're amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really, I didn't even know that about you. That's amazing. And that's, yeah. where, that's where your first publication was. And I guess, so obviously you see yourself as a storyteller, right? And some of the stories mm. that you've been able to tell, which are amazing over the years. What's been some of your favourite stories that you've been able to tell on some of these larger platforms? Oh, God, there's loads. Like, I love um, I love what I've been able to do over the last year and a half since I since I joined Metro um, I've had such amazing kind of autonomy to to write about race and identity um, and I've, I've I've loved so much of it and my, my favorite things are when I when I get to meet cool people I get to meet people like you and find out what you're doing and um, so that's what I enjoy I think yeah I think I really enjoy it so my first thing that I did that you know was my my series about about mixed race people and um, the kind of differences and uh, similarities and kind of bringing the mixed experience to a, a, a mainstream platform was, was something that was really important to me and I'm glad I got to do that and I spoke to I think 55 mixed people over over the course of the wow. year which is loads <laughs> and that they come in and we do a photo shoot and um you know they walk through the office and everyone's like oh yeah, yeah that's Natalie doing her doing a mixed race thing I'm like yep always <laughs> that's all I do um so yeah that was I loved that and and it was fascinating and I learned so much myself through doing it about about the conversation around it because when I pitched it I was I was quite new to the to the idea to I hadn't done the most amount of reading about it I hadn't done the most amount of research I was just like I just want to tell people stories like let's talk to some mixed race people and see what it's like um but doing it I've learned so much and I found out just people just had incredible stories about their own lives but also the the connections between people and the way that these like thematic like things just kept recurring like everyone I spoke to they had such different backgrounds and and different mixes of heritages and experiences but the same things kept coming up again and again and again and so when I looked at that body of work of these like 54 interviews um and I could just start piecing things together and I was like this is actually mad that all of these people have you know are, are telling me so many of the same things among all the different things as well but I just didn't know that there would be this kind of connection and for me that was really powerful because I, I just didn't realize that there was such a like a strong kind of identity and community almost in that kind of mixed race space and that was that was a really nice thing yeah. for me to kind of yeah. um to work through and, and discover so I really enjoyed that um Another thing that we did recently was um, a, a series called The State of Racism, which was a look at racism in the UK, which is a pretty broad topic now I say it like that. Like, it's <laughs> quite vague and open, but um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, where, where to start with that one? But it was basically in response. So this was all kicked off actually before everything happened um, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. This was about two months before any of that kicked off. Um, so I felt really kind of happy and like proud that we'd almost been ahead of the curve on that and pushing for that content before it was about, you know, before it was a trend kind of, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah. that was, that yeah. was important to me that we were able to do that. Um, but yeah, we, and we looked at all sorts from, um, inequalities in healthcare to, um, education and just the kind of things that, just really hammer it home and it's almost felt like a bit of a racism for dummies 
kind of series like a like <laughs> that's quite like, funny to me like like explainers and and just like literally like some of the articles were like what is a microaggression what does white privilege mean and these are like when you exist in these worlds like for you guys and for me when you've kind of done this kind of reading and this work and um, that's kind of your life that you exist in you don't you'd think that that's such a basic thing but these these articles absolutely blew like they went so big and and got so many shares and I'm like I'm not saying anything different or new or like particularly groundbreaking it's just the fact that it's on this mainstream platform these they are Mm -hmm. they are kind of radical ideas to put into into on this platform so, Do you know what's actually funny? Because like when you said it, I typed in "what is a microaggression UK" and on news like that came up, and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> people people will actually be typing this in in oh, some yeah. office somewhere." Yeah. And it's just yeah, and now they've got that because that's a question that will be on someone's mind, and now there's an actual article that they can go to and read. Exactly, that's all I wanted to do. I just was like, let's just tell them um, in a way that they should be told, like because. I just think it's really important that people have a literature and a language to talk about race. I think that's one thing that we're really, really lacking um, in, you know, in this country. We don't know how to talk about race. It's awkward for everybody and painful and people would rather be silent than say the wrong thing. There's so much fear um, of getting it wrong. So this was a way of opening it up and being like, it's okay to discuss these things. If you don't have the words, just share this article, read this, send this to your friends and then you don't have to you don't have to do it yourself. So it was almost like a like a bit of a toolkit, um, and it's all in one place, and people can go and, and see all the different facets and elements that are in this conversation. And it you know it, even if it's just scratching the surface and starting that conversation for people, that's that was the important thing for me. Yeah, um, that's really. I mean, yes, that's literally a, a community service you're providing there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a quick read of it as well. I was like, yeah, super useful. Um, when you're talking you know a few minutes ago about you know enjoying covering that piece on like being mixed race and how there are so many people from mixed heritage backgrounds that had vastly different um, experiences and backgrounds but then also had a lot of commonalities um, it got me thinking about and also because I saw that you you wrote an article on this part about the term Bane um, and I guess in some like in the work that I do we we kind of like bid for certain grants and funding to run programs and you know because our whole kind of fingers around diversity a lot of times um you know the term BAME is used or the term people of color or whatever etc is used um because that's just the demographic that we're trying to reach out to and you know as a black man obviously I know that there's so much <laughs> differences within the experiences of people within that you know that BAME um however it is something that's quite is more of a practical term for me than I guess it is as like a identity um and I saw that you obviously wrote a piece about that I just wanted to get your your view on the podcast and like why the term BAME is problematic yeah it's um it's a tricky one and I think it's it's something people have been have been knowing for a while that it's not ideal um, but I think it's kind of resurfaced again over the last few months. Like on Twitter, there's been a lot of conversations about the use of the term, and um, and I think I think it's because um, like companies are now all suddenly talking about race, and it's everywhere. And I think there's been it's just been 
been branded around a lot. Um, and like you say, I think I think it can be a practical term in that. So my issue is that it, not just my issue, lots of people's issue is that it it like homogenizes the experience. Like you said, it's 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 a way of um, putting all people who aren't white together. Um, which is problematic because it positions whiteness as the norm, as the default, and everybody else, all of those other people are just not white and they're in one singular group, which is, which is like absurd when you, when you really think about it. Um, and just, you know, it's just really props up that whole, the, the hierarchies and, and with whiteness at the top and everyone else underneath that. So that's why it's an issue, yeah. but I can understand it being used um when you're when you're literally in a practical sense of literally talking about people from ethnic minority backgrounds, if if that's what you're saying. But the problem is when people use it when they could say black or they could say Asian mm-hmm. and they decide, they make that conscious choice to say gay instead. Like why why do that? It's almost it's like a watering down of of people's experiences. And it I think it it's also a way of um I wrote this in the article of like um like fudging statistics and like hiding mm. the realities yeah. um because obviously uh black people to fare the worst when it comes to systemic racism in pretty much all institutions and so if an institution can publish data under the category under the umbrella category of BAME they often come off better than if they're being specifically asked about black people so mm-hmm that's a that's a way around it and I think you know that's the same story um in Oxbridge at Cambridge and Oxford they if you look at their BAME figures they're so much better than if you look at their um you know the numbers of Boy. black students yeah. so yeah. it's a it's a completely different story and and I think it's a um you know it's a it's a sneaky way that institutions can um you know paint a, a more positive picture than is actually what's going on so it kind of hides anti-blackness that's happening um and and ultimately it's just it's just lazy I think it's just really lazy like when you could be specific be specific I don't think it's that hard but I think again some of it stems from fear and um and ignorance as well for feeling like saying I know, I know people who who will do anything they to not say black or to not be specific so they don't have to say the word like they're scared of it um so i think some people think oh bame's the the more polite word or the more politically correct thing to say you know how you know how you've got like old people who will still say colored because they think that's nicer yeah you know and it's like no 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 you you can be specific but i think that i think a lot of that comes from a fear of, of of saying the wrong thing so i think it's again just just um letting people know so that article that I wrote I I shared it and it, it it you know went on went to a lot of different places and um I got emails from people saying I hadn't I hadn't thought about that and I'm gonna I've emailed my bosses to be like we shouldn't be using this term and I've sent them your article and so that that's good and, and when people can acknowledge that it's a it, it's an ignorance thing and they just didn't realize and hadn't thought about the connotations and, and the meanings of, of banding people together like that then I think that's that's the kind of best first step in dismantling mm. it yeah i think w- what's interesting there is when you said you get emails from people be like oh that's cool i hadn't registered that before and that's probably like one of the benefits of being in a more mainstream 
sort of uh, industry, like in, on a more mainstream platform rather, is that you can get that access to people who wouldn't otherwise be reading or wouldn't otherwise be seeing the message that you're saying. But with that, I guess also probably comes not just nice messages, probably a little bit of hate as well, right? Um, yes. One, do you get any of that? And two, if you do, mm-hmm. what do you do? Um, yes, I get a lot of that. I get much more of that than the than the positive stuff, sadly. Um, that is what comes with the territory when you write about race, um, and you're and you're not white, and you're in, a, you know, a, a position where people can see you and can access you. Um, so that is it's a double edged sword um, being on a mainstream platform because, like you say, it means my reach is much much wider and. A lot of the time I get positive feedback and that's brilliant and I see people sharing it and that would never normally have sought something like that out. They would they don't maybe know that Galdem exists, they don't know that Black Ballad exists. So if they just go on Facebook and they see this article by the Metro that tells them something that they didn't know, that's brilliant. Mm. At the same time, a lot of those people have no interest in reading about this stuff and are personally affronted that I would dare to you know, put it in front of their eyes. So um, yeah. I get a lot of, um, a lot of hate. Yeah, I get a lot of angry messages, um, a lot of seemingly unhinged messages from people who are like, there's, there's so much anger. Like I, I, that's always what surprises me is the level of anger to, mm. you know, take time out of your day to, to send me an email with all this vitriol like this you can feel it I'm reading it and I'm like whoa like this guy was like shaking with anger when he wrote this email like and never in my life have I cared about anything enough to to send an email like that (laughs) I'm like god like you really care like this is very strange to me um and you know you know they they find me on twitter or I've had messages on instagram in my dms before and so that's that's the negative side of 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 a piece going viral and it's it's interesting because it is part of the job as a journalist to to have that feedback and to have that interaction and and all of my colleagues get shitty emails we get nasty emails from people we get um that's that is just part of the job and and you know as as women we get we get called all sorts of things like you know we get Mm. called sluts we get called fat our appearance is attacked all of this kind of stuff which is obviously horrible and misogynistic awfulness but then when you add the race stuff into the mix as well that just takes it to another level um and it it just makes me think that it just shouldn't be part of your job um mm. at all mm. and I, I and I look at my colleagues who have the same job title as me who are doing the same stuff and they don't have you know with emails of people telling them that they they don't belong in this country that they should be grateful to be here and all this kind of stuff that I get on a regular basis um I even had yeah a few weeks ago so kind of at the early lockdown times I got a call from a police officer from counter-terrorism who <laughs> I'm wow. laughing it's not, oh, it's not funny um he was like um he's like yeah your um your details have been in, been shared on a on like a far-right terrorist what? website um so wow. that was scary and he was like yeah so they they you know they've they've shared a, a, the, where they think you live and your details and blah 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 and I was like oh my god like literally what is happening so and this this really lovely police officer was um helped me like deal with all of that and and help me up all my online security and make sure everything was set to private and that people couldn't find where I was and he was like if you get any emails if you get anything just give us a call and I had this direct number to ring and 
it's um yeah that's just ridiculous that that is something I have to deal with in my job doing my job I, I was like I don't get paid anywhere near enough to be dealing with this <laughs> um but it's something that uh that yeah my my my, my colleague um is Asian and has been working on the state of racism um post with me as well she got she got a lot of the same and had to had to deal with the police because she was getting threats so yeah that's it's it's a lot it's a lot to be honest yeah that's you know what like I hear it and it was almost when when you said oh it just comes with the territory and it's like I think anyone in this country knows that if they're going to speak about race in particular they're just going to be attacked for just being them and saying what they need to say do you get any support or is there any sort of I don't know in-house training or whatever for what do you do with trolls or what do you do when you're just speaking about race as someone with a platform does anyone help you with that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah no they do they've uh work have been really good I um you know I told them about the the police and all of those kind of things when it was all kicking off particularly around uh, you know a couple of my articles that, that went particularly big um and yeah they, they they've been good they've um they we have like counsellors at work that I've never actually used but allegedly I can call a number and, and talk to someone um mm. which is interesting um I've, I've not I don't, I've not done that but maybe maybe I will at some point um and yeah we just have monitoring in terms of the comments and the and you know who is who is interacting with these posts we have people doing that we have a, a good system in place so that myself or people who have written these articles don't have to be monitoring the comments ourselves someone is looking at that and if there's anything particularly threatening or hostile they can deal with it because you know sometimes I will I try to avoid the comments like so so much but then sometimes I'll just fall into a little hole and just start scrolling and I'm like oh my god Um, and I can lose hours of my life doing that and it's just it's never a fun time it's never a good place to be and most of them most of the time they just you know that it, it's like water off a duck's back at this point because you do become desensitized because you have to um and you're just like oh yeah just the normal normal racist that's fine that's fine and then there'll be one comment that just like just gets to you that just sticks in your brain and that's what they want and they want you to feel like that and it's really annoying that it actually works sometimes and you and you end up starting doubting yourself and you know they, they say things like um and, you know, they've done their research on you as well. So you go in and they're like, oh, well, you know, she's only got this job because her, her dad's a journalist. And so she's just, so, you know, wow. all these kind of like personal yeah. things that you're like, how do they even know that? And, and <laughs> it's, just, it's just little things like that where you're like, you should, of course, you should just be like, ignore, ignore, ignore. And yeah. most and 99% of the time you can. And then there'll be that 1% that you're going to bed at night and you turn the light off and you just that that one comment will just pop into your brain start pecking at your head and you're like oh why am I thinking about this now why is why is this person living in my brain now like get out um so that is that's one of the hard things so it's really good that we have a system where I don't have to be involved in that I can remove myself from you know the worst of it so yeah but I do do think there needs to be more I think there needs to be more support I think it shouldn't just be accepted as part of the job at all um because literally none of us are paid enough it's (laughs) this is not a well-paid job I'm not like oh well at least I'm least I'm rolling in cash so I can take it it's like no no I shouldn't have to deal with this on top of it so yeah I think there needs to be there does need to be better support um I guess someone to talk to because again as well there's this kind of innate feeling that you don't to cause a fuss you don't want to be that person Mm -hmm. who who can't take it who can't who's like upset or like Mm -hmm 
it almost feels like a strength thing. Like you have to just be like, yeah, I'm unaffected by that. That's fine. That's fine. And most of the time you are, but it's like, I shouldn't have to be. If I, if I am affected yeah. by it, that should be fine. But you do feel like yeah. you don't want to be that person who is, you know, causing extra work for your managers and your bosses. So I think there needs to be, it needs to come from the top that they're checking in on you and they're making sure you're okay. So you don't have to be the one to be like, hi, can someone help me? This is really hard, you know? Yeah, yeah what so with that right like how do you keep motivated to carry on telling the stories that you're telling if you know that these are the ones that you want to tell but with that also comes I guess this horrible backlash to you personally I think or it's weird but that almost spurs me on more because I'm just like a lot of the time I those comments like they do like galvanize me and I'm like right I'm pissing off the right people these people mm. are annoyed. I'm going to keep going. Because mm. But he has to. I've already started, so I may as well continue. And I also, I just feel compelled to, like I'm, um, I don't know, it's, it sounds kind of righteous and like I, I feel like I'm some crusader and really I'm just writing articles <laughs> on the internet. But it's like, I feel like this is, this is my, this is what I can do. I can, I can tell stories, I can write words and I can yeah. do it in a way that connects to people. So it, I don't know I feel like I I have to it's my way of, of doing something um and I I just I just I really care about it it's this is the stuff that I that I care about I want my friends I want my colleagues I want people in my life to, to know that these things are happening to care about them as well to share these these stories and to just widen widen that reach basically so um it is hard and some days I'm like I'll go to write something and I'm like oh god I'm, I know what reactions is going to get and I'll be like opening Twitter like ah, I'm so scared like what, what kind of madness is going to be going on and, and you do just have to turn the comments off and also remember that it is online like this isn't the real world like I can mm. I can walk away from my computer and go out and have a walk and no one's going to be looking at me and thinking anything like it is a it's a bubble that you're in and it's really hard to remember that sometimes um and, you, and it does feel like, particularly when you're in this this media world, and and everything is Twitter, and everything is about the reaction you're getting, and and how viral you're going. And then I speak to my friends who aren't in that world, and I'm like, oh my god, like Twitter, blah blah, this happened, and they're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and there, and Pete, and there are so many people who are so out of that world and are so far removed, and it's quite a nice reminder that it isn't everything that you can even if something goes massive and you're getting all these comments and all these hate or all the support or whatever that is that is actually a tiny portion of the world of the, of, of the life that you have um so it's important to to step away from that and remember you know and just back yourself as well like I think that's the key thing that I've learned over the last few years is I, I you know I am still you get nervous when you start getting backlash and you start getting comments and that is a scary thing as a journalist but it's made me so careful about what I write and I don't write anything now that I that I don't 100% back that even if people start giving me hate that if I can turn around and look at it and be like no but I still believe all of that I'm not now questioning myself this is I'm still I'm, I'm still completely on side with what I wrote then that's all that matters so if I can if I truly feel that and believe that that is my kind of armor against the backlash because I, I know that I can 
hold my own with that the only time when the backlash should really get to you is if you're then like oh yeah maybe I shouldn't have written that maybe that's actually not right so yeah absolutely um Natalie I think this has been amazing so far like I don't really have I don't have anything to add because I'm just sitting here in awe of everything you said and going yep yeah like absolutely this is this so true and it's so interesting just to hear it from someone whose job it is is to tell stories but to hear the backlash that you get from just telling a story um Quaker do you have anything that you want to ask Natalie just before we wrap up no, likewise, man. I've just been kind of sitting in and, and, and taking it all in. And yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to hear like so many similarities between your experiences and like my wife as well, because she's, she's into journalism. But luckily she's, she's like off the, she's not really in front of the camera or anything like that. She does the production side, so she doesn't have to like, <laughs> she's not on the firing line when it comes to those types of situations. But um, just, just the difficulties that come with presenting uh, a, a story that maybe the mainstream isn't necessarily prepared to hear or something that's you know I think people get really uncomfortable when they're hearing stuff that kind of shakes their whole perspective of how things are and it, it kind of disorientates them and they just tend to lash out rather than try to engage with it um, so no it's just really interesting to hear that from your perspective as well but um, yeah, no, no further questions from me. <laughs> well, I guess all that's left to say is, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. Like, it's been so good having you on. Um, oh, thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. No, nah, for sure. Is there anywhere that... Ah, oh, I love that. Is there anywhere that people could find you if they do want to find you and not troll you just to be nice? <laughs> absolutely uh i'm on twitter at nmoz or you can look up my work um on metro online so yeah metro.co.uk under the lifestyle section there's also different tags for the different projects that i've worked on so you can search metro the state of racism and you'll find all of the stuff that i've basically been talking about today so yeah go check it out amazing thank you natalie and then all that's left to say from me is to our listeners wherever you are in the world whatever you're doing have a great rest of your day if you want to get in touch with us you know our socials it's at otb podcast uk on instagram and twitter or you can always email us at otb podcast uk at gmail.com we love it when you do it's always really nice sometimes we screenshot them and put them on our socials so you might be featured there if you want to do it other than that all to say is goodbye thank you for listening